0: everyone welcome back to from the front row brought to you by the university of iowa college of public health my name is anya Morozov, and i am joined today by alexis clark if this is your first time with us welcome we're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone both in and out of the field of public health today we are talking with dr kenneth paul rosenberg who works as a psychiatrist in a private practice in Manhattan and as a clinical associate professor at Weill Cornell Medicine. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and he is also a Peabody Award-winning producer and director of multiple films about mental health issues. Finally, he is also the filmmaker and author of Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis, which is this year's book for the U. Iowa College of Public Health's book club. Today, he is on the show to talk with us about his career, his book in film, and serious mental illness in the United States. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rosenberg. Pleasure to be here.
1: So Anya just gave a great introduction to what you're currently endeavoring in. What was your journey like to psychiatry, and why did you decide to venture into other forms of work, such as filmmaking and writing?
2: Right. Right. So I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. I wanted to become a psychiatrist because it fascinated me. I loved learning about the human mind. I became very interested in the 1970s and 1980s in uh, humanistic psychology, transactional analysis, Fritz Perls, all these great authors and great thinkers. But I had another reason as well. My sister has schizophrenia and developed a very severe case of schizophrenia. And unfortunately, ultimately died from schizophrenia. That happened later on, but her illness and my experience with my family, on top of my interests, led me to want to become a psychiatrist. And by the way, I went to medical school for no other reason except to become a psychiatrist. I was not interested in. You could keep the bodies, you could keep the microscopes, you know, all the things that you have to do as a medical student were kind of interesting, but really not something I wanted to, you know, really delve into. Now, the first year of medical school in New York City at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine was really kind of tough in a way. I mean, there was no psychiatry or very little psychiatry in that year. And I was going to cut up a rat brain that summer and you know, kind of do the research I'd done from since I was an undergraduate. But I decided, no, nah, this summer, I'm gonna do something really different. I'm gonna you know, take a film course. And for me, making films and interviewing people and delving into the issues of mental illness and mental health vis-a-vis film was much closer to, to what I was interested in than what I was doing in medical school. So it wasn't that I was like interested in doing something else. It was that I was interested in really being involved with people's lives, telling their stories, getting to know them. And film provided me such a vehicle. And I loved it. You know, I really love the visual part of it. I love the storytelling part of it. And my medical school, as it turned out, was very, very supportive of me. And they enabled me to study film at NYU while I was getting my medical degree. And uh, throughout my career, I found that level of support. My residency at Cornell was, was supportive. My fellowship at Cornell was very supportive. They created a fellowship that would allow me to study addiction psychiatry, which I was interested in, but also allow me to make films and study films and talk about films. So I was kind of, you know, really blessed with mentors who could support this interest and not think it's kind of some wacky thing. And I can't emphasize it enough. For me, making films, writing books is kind of just like my same job as a psychotherapist. You know, I'm in with someone's life, I'm trying to understand what they're about, I'm trying to make some sense out of it and put it to some good use. So there is kind of a lesson in there for all of us. That you don't have to be someone with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder to know what it's like to have that and to learn something about your own life and your own world.
1: Do you think had your mentors or your medical school not have played that level of support that your career path or your life would look a lot differently?
2: yes absolutely you know my mentor in medical school his name is david previn became really one of my best friends in adult you know and what i'll call adult life you know as a doctor and a professor and all that and we're still closest friends to this day and uh, you know oh it was so important because you know david previn he was the person who led us in psychiatry at the medical school he really, kind of believed in what I was going to do and really supported. And he helped raise money. You know, if you make a film, if you write a book, you could just like need some way to support yourself. But if you make a film, you need some way to support yourself and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to support your endeavor. So, David was really helpful in doing all of that. And throughout my career, there were many psychiatrists. So, I was to freeze Alan Manavis, These names mean nothing to you, but. To me, they were the people who really steered me in, in a direction, said, you know, we'll, we'll help you do this. Absolutely. Mentorship meant everything to me, including the mentorship from my medical school. You know, I thought about going to Penn for medical school and I I'm not sure that they would have been as supportive, you know, but Einstein surely was.
1: So when writing Bedlam, did you have in mind always that there was going to be a film to follow or what was the chronological order there?
2: Well, actually, we, we start, you know, films take a long time. So writing the book and making the film took about seven years, maybe really longer, if I'm going to be honest. I mean, I think it was 2010 that I thought about this project and started looking in earnest at where I was going to do it. And it was 2019 we premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. In 2020 that we were on, you know, TV on PBS. So, you know, a long time went through it. And so the, the book and the film kind of developed simultaneously. I always have to say, you know, they were just, whenever I make a film now, I always think of a book. And whenever I write a book, I always think of a film. So they kind of worked hand in hand. The book really offered me an opportunity to do what the film couldn't. You know, in a film you have, you can't go much longer than 90 minutes in a documentary. I mean, some people do, but it's really super hard. And, you know, you have to have a narrative that really is cohesive and that makes sense. It has a beginning, middle, end. In a book, you don't have to kind of worry about that so much. You could, you know, start with one character, go to another character, go to another chapter. It's divided up, you know, very neatly in chapters, which enable you to do different topics. So the book really enabled me to go into the history we went the, in history, if you've seen the film, we go into history in the film. And the film's available on Amazon and all those places. But if, if you see the film, we go into history, but just the history of psychiatry has collapsed into like three minutes. In the book, it's, you know, 40 pages at least of kind of where we came from and, and then 40 more pages about where we need to go.
0: So when you released the film, how did stakeholders like the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the American Psychiatric Association, and the LA Mental Health Department react to the film?
2: Great question. So the, the National Alliance on, on Mental Illness, they, NAMI, they were always really supportive. We actually worked a lot with NAMI before the film came out and worked with them about how we would bring the film out and what what kind of thoughts we should put into not only the film, but into the marketing, if you will, and trying to get our messaging across. So they were very enthusiastic, as enthusiastic as anyone could be. And we expected that. I was a little more scared about organized psychiatry, frankly, because in the book and in the film, I take a lot of shots at psychiatry. And I say that you know we in psychiatry have abandoned our sickest patients. Now, that's not like a popular thing to say to your colleagues, right? But they took it really well. In fact, they, the American Psychiatric Association embraced the bill. I was also afraid about how the folks in Los Angeles would react because, you know, we show they're really good doctors, actually great doctors, great health care providers. Everyone's trying to do their best, but the system is really broken. It's really messed up. And I was afraid that, you know, they would not like showing how messed up their system is. Turned out they loved it. They couldn't have supported it more. They actually took over the Paramount Theater and Paramount Lots in Los Angeles because they wanted, they wanted to really usher the film into LA. And we had kind of big screenings there, sponsored and supported by the Department of Mental Health. Uh, so they became in some ways kind of our biggest fans. And I think, that, you know, I, I'm really moved by that, frankly. I'm really kind of touched by the fact that we had this kind of diverse group of, of folks from Black Lives Matter to the National Sheriff's Association. Can't get these people in a room otherwise. But in and, and the American Psychiatric Association and groups that were not so in favor of psychiatry. And pretty much they all rallied behind the film. And I think they did because the film was very honest. It was, you know, it wasn't, finding villains, because I don't think there are villains in this, but it was saying, you know, we have to do a better job, and we're doing a terrible job, in fact. And, you know, it's our society has ignored these people, but we professionals uh, have also ignored these, these folks with, you know, who are really sick. So the fact that we had such an incredible response was very, very, you know, just felt great.
1: I think that's really important that you did go in with such an open mind, because I think you're right. It could have gone one, one way or the other. And the fact that they did rally behind this, this film and this book really says, says a lot that people are trying to improve the system. Yes. So moving on to the topic of mental illness, can you define exactly what constitutes as a serious mental illness?
2: Well, look, any mental illness that you or I have or family members have is serious, right? But in the psychiatric understanding, what we call serious mental illness, are those illnesses that are really debilitating, those illnesses that stop you from working, that stop you from having relationships. It's not like, you know, you're anxious, you're depressed, and it's like a little hard to have a relationship or you know, you're, God, I'm going out with the same person over and over again, you know, all the kind of problems that we usually have but that you find it impossible because for instance, you're hearing voices and the voices are telling you that everyone is out to get you, or you're having delusions and you you think you're seeing things and you have misunderstandings or misperceptions. So serious mental illness, which affects some small percentage of the population, anywhere from one to 4%, really are those illnesses which make it impossible to function, can't work, can't have a relationship, can't really live outside, you know, some protective place. And those illnesses are things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, both of which, by the way, are very treatable if people get illness, but in their acute, fulminant, you know, state, when you get really sick with those illnesses, man, you can't do anything. You know, you're really sick. So that's what we call a severe mental illness.
0: Kind of related to that, are there any groups that are disproportionately affected by serious mental illness?
2: Great question. So, you know, what are the things that cause serious mental illness? Well, certainly it's partly your genes, right? It's partly your DNA, but at most your DNA accounts for 50% of it at most. So why do I say 50% of it? If you have, an ident- if you have schizophrenia, let's say, and you have an identical twin, you know, with your same exact DNA and more or less, and they, are, they have a, what chance of having schizophrenia if you have schizophrenia? Well, they have a 50% chance, it's the same DNA. Well, what else? And that's, you know, a very severe illness, which is very treatable by the way, but still a severe illness, and probably a very biologically or the most biologically based illness. So what accounts for the other 50%? Poverty, trauma, structural racism surely doesn't help. If you are mistreated and you don't have a family structure, that doesn't help. If you are doing substances, if you're, you know, your life revolves around recreational substance abuse and you're not just getting high you know, once in a while, but you're addicted to alcohol, or you know, any other kind of recreational drug, well, that puts you at much, much greater risk. So the people who are more vulnerable are people who are subject to all those sorts of things of poverty, of you know, structural racism, of trauma, repeated trauma. So in our film, we have a guy, Monty, for instance. In our book, we have a guy, Monty. Monty was, you know, is, is, is a black man who was diagnosed in jail. And then in prison, you know, he had a very severe mental illness. He had schizoaffective disorder, which is some combination of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. And Monty was not diagnosed until he was in jail for, you know, a number of years. So, and that was very traumatic for him, right? So he didn't get the proper treatments. He was traumatized. He was certainly the recipient of, of a lot of bad stuff in life. And that makes someone you know, certainly more vulnerable to, to a mental illness. And we, and we see that in Monty. Now Monty also has something great going for him, which is a wonderful, wonderful family. And if you've read the book or seen the film, his sister, Patrice, it was so involved in his care. And she was actually quite, you know, involved in other people's care. She co-founded Black Lives Matter. Uh, and she did that in the course of our following her for the book and film. But You know, a good family is good, but all the other things that Monty had against him, that puts him at great risk.
1: So a question relating back to your comment about substance abuse, you know, being a factor. A lot of times substance abuse and schizophrenia, for example, are related. Is it actually the substance that can trigger these, the onbringings of mental illnesses, or is it more so their lifestyle and them revolving their lifestyle around these substances?
2: It's a great question, Alexis. And I think that if you could answer that, you'll win the Nobel prize. Um, It's a very, it's very, very hard. But I think your question implies what is probably happening, which is once you have a brain disorder or a mind disorder, if you prefer, you're then more vulnerable to all the other bad things that can happen to you. Bad relationships, you know, bad uh, uh, situations because of poverty or, because of the downward spiral of life if you're, if you're seriously ill. And one of the bad things that could happen is, especially if you're, you know, God forbid living on the streets, is that you're, you're now using lots of recreational drugs because that's your world. And frankly, it's a way to escape or even self-medicate the horrible things that you're experiencing, both because of your situation and also because of your illness. Now, So that's the idea, the second idea that you mentioned, Alexis, which is that mental illness makes you more vulnerable to substance use. But it could work the other way around. And in the book, I write about that quite a bit. This might be a rather unpopular thing to say, but I do believe that for a certain population, that substance use will open a window onto mental illness that might otherwise have remained closed. And I think that You know, although I'm a fan of not criminalizing marijuana, I believe that for some people, some small population, smoking, you know, like day and night, as I've had patients do, will open a window on a psychotic experience, a psychotic experience like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, that might have otherwise remained closed or, you know, like partially open, right? So I think that it's, it's, it's hard to figure out what is what here. But I think it's fairly safe to say that if you have a mental illness, you're you're vulnerable to all these things and they're going to make you worse. And if you do some things for some subpopulation that's vulnerable, that may bring out a fulminant mental illness that would have otherwise remained dormant.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You talk a lot in your book about the role of early intervention in improving outcomes for people with serious mental illness. And how that can be very difficult when there's stigma surrounding these illnesses. So what would you say are some of the early warnings of, warning signs of serious mental illness that can prompt people to seek care?
2: This is a very important question, Anya. Thank you for bringing it up. The early warning signs are hard to say because these illnesses become apparent over time. You can't really, you know, you can't really say that because someone's doing X or Y or Z that they're going to develop schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But there are some things that we know are associated with those people who develop it. So what we would call bizarre thinking, you know, thinking where people are like really just, you know, they're, it's not that they're like out of the box or, you know, original thinkers, but they're, they have thoughts which just don't make sense. You know and or they have ideas magical ideas which are not just kind of you know their connection to spirituality but it's like it's like over the top it's it's not what you or any of your friends are sort of thinking they're you know they have mood disorders and again we all have bad days and good days we all have depressed days we all have days when like this is the greatest day ever but you know people with who are bipolar disorder in particular are subject to really deep depressions and really high highs. You know, really this kind of irrational exuberance, mania, euphoria. So you can see some of these things in people who are vulnerable. You also see that they're cutting themselves off from other people. Their schoolwork is declining. Their friend base is shrinking. You know, they're not showing up. And everyone's kind of like wondering why, you know? So that could be any number of things from a mental illness to a substance abuse problem, but it really suggests that there might be a problem. And it's important, you mentioned the stigma, you. it's really important that we not let that hold us back, right, because we know that any illness, any illness, if you treat it early on, if you address it early on, it's much easier to treat them down the road. It's much easier to treat stage one cancer or stage zero cancer, and that's why we all want early detection for these kinds of things, than it is to treat stage four metastatic cancer. Well, the same is true in mental illness. It's much easier to help someone when, you know, they're having some problems and they're on the cusp of some bigger problems than when they're, you know, homeless or, you know, ill for years and years and years. It's, a, it's an art to figure that out, right, Anya? Because you don't want to be overly aggressive. The medications have side effects. You don't want to take someone out of school, for instance, you know, and, and send them to the hospital you absolutely have to, that could really have a profound impact, but still, you know, it's really super important to figure out what is going on and, you know, at least get therapy, at least talk to a professional, at least talk to someone. So you can get some help early on. That's, critically important. And I'm, you know, we all know people like that. I'm sure you know people in school where you're like, you know, I think they should really talk to someone because the thing, things aren't going so well for them. You know, they were doing okay in the first semester, but by their sophomore year, it's not looking good. And it's really super important to get, to get help with that.
1: So as a family member or a friend, or just being a concerned individual in general, what are some ways you can support someone with a serious mental illness.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it could be really hard because when people get a serious mental illness, they have something called a no which I wrote about in the book. And that means that you, you know, you're sick, you know, you're hearing voices and you're, and you have a sense that the FBI is out to get you and that your roommate wants to stab you in your sleep. And you know, you don't have a sense that that's wrong. You have a sense that, oh, that's right. And anyone who kind of argues with you, you know, you immediately think they're they're part of the conspiracy. They're the plot against me. So it's not so easy. But, you know, you really want to approach people, so corny to say, but with love and understanding. You don't you want to let them know, look, I'm not trying to judge you, but I think you have an, a, a problem. It's very, very helpful to contact family members. It's very, very helpful to contact other people, in the network maybe a teacher certainly you know someone in the in the health office you know there's who could really help you think this through and that's i think that's true whether they have a substance abuse problem or a mental health or a mental illness problem and i would encourage you know people to think you're not ratting them out you're just trying to you know find some way to help them because you know you know that this is it gets worse and a no fair number of people commit suicide, right? And and a fair number of people, you know, get sick and get in trouble and have to drop out of school. And you want to really endeavor to prevent that. So, you know, I would say, you know, support them the best you can, not abandon them and not get angry at them and not try to rescue them. You know, when we try to rescue people and we're like, I got to help you, you know, you have to listen to me, you know, then we end up fighting with them, they fight with us and we feel persecuted and then we feel victimized and they feel victimized. So, but, you know, just like hanging in there with them and trying to be just kind of a loving family member, loving friend. But I hasten to add, sometimes that's not so easy to do because, you know, if you, you will be seen as part of the enemy camp.
0: When somebody first seeks out treatment, can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like. And if somebody like a family member is seeking to help with that process, how much can they and how much does somebody need to refer themselves for care?
2: I, I want to answer Anya, I, I think it's a very important question, but when you say how much does someone need to refer themselves for care, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking.
0: Yeah, I guess in your experience, is it does it tend to be like people are self-referring or are they being referred by family members family members yeah
2: yeah it, it really depends on you know where people are at i mean i think thank god you know you know millennials and younger are much more aware of mental illness problems than people you know the previous generations and baby boomers who are just kind of so ashamed to get help i think people who are in university settings are much more educated and aware of these issues, and are much more willing to get help. But by and large, you know, when people get really sick and really get kind of reclusive, then it's often the family members or friends or you know, roommates or whomever who have to say, hey, you know, we need to get you help. And sometimes you know, that help could take a very aggressive stance. Sometimes you have to hospitalize people against their will or you know, unfortunately the police might have to take them out of their room and you know, put them into a hospital. So I don't think there's any formula. I think that for, for people who are very, very ill, it's often the family members, friends, and loved ones who, who have to you know get involved and bring them to someone's attention. But it really, it really varies. Increasingly, because there's awareness and because there's a lot of initiatives for what's called first episode intervention, you know, where you intervene with someone who has a serious illness, serious mental illness early on, and there's lots of talk about it, people are, you know, self-referring more and more. And again, I think younger people, people are more educated or willing to do that because they, you know, they realize like it's very good help than, than not. And, you know, I mean, I think everyone should be like psychotherapy, you know? And that's what I do for a living. So I think that, you know, we all should avail ourselves of mental health. And I think that younger people really realize that, whereas older people are kind of stuck with the idea that no, you, you, you know, there, there's your medical health and then there's going to an asylum and there's like nothing in between. You know, but if you had, just like we see doctors, medical doctors all the time, right? Why should you get a yearly physical or go to a specialist for some issue you might have, but not get your mental health checked or be talking to someone? I mean, that, that's just part of the, I really think ignorance and stigma that we have lived with for a long time.
1: So in your book, Bedlam, you give a really good summary of the history surrounding the treatment of serious mental illness in our country. Would you be able to summarize some of the main events in, in mental health care policy that has led to some of the present day gaps that we're seeing in, in care now?
2: Absolutely, Alexis. So, you know, the, look, the history of, of mental illness treatment is as old as the history of medicine. But let's start in, let's say, the 1800s, when, when in the Enlightenment period, people wanted to build asylums or places where people could go and get help. And the Quakers, in particular, in this country and in Europe, created what's called the moral treatments, which doesn't sound good. It's not, you know, it's not a great name. But what the moral treatment was is like, you know, kind of just rest and meditate and you know, give yourself to God or something, give yourself to good work, and just kind of take it easy, you know, just chill for a little bit. And that became the treatment till pretty much until the 1900s. Now, those asylums were built with the best of intentions, they were monuments to enlightenment and, and, and improvement. They were replacing the jails, they were replacing the terrible places that people had been. But they, you know, by the mid 1900s, really became disgraces. They became terrible places and they were, you know, a national disgrace and, and scandalous, frankly. Now, in between that, before we get to the 1950s when there's this movement to get rid of those, abolish those terrible asylums, uh, Before that, you know, in the 1900s, early 1900s, there were all these kind of biological psychiatry treatments that people tried and not with much success. And they were what many people call you know, desperate attempts and you know, huge attempts to, to do things like take people's intestines out or take their teeth out because it was this, this cocky idea in the 1920s that infections were the source of mental illness, which had some credence because syphilis had become a major problem for mental illness. And that was cured by penicillin, and it was an infection, and that was discovered in the, 19, uh, you know, in the 1900s. But for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, there was no infection that was causing this. But that idea was kind of there. People would, you know, take out people's body parts uh, with the idea that that would cure them. They would, they would put them in a coma, an insulin coma, to, to, to cure them. They would do frontal lobotomies, in which they would literally take an ice pick and drive it through you know, the, cre- the crevice between your eyeball and your nose and knock it into your brain to try to knock out some frontal lobe tissue. And that, of course, was a disaster. That also was what people were doing. It was so uh, important, as I talk about in the book, that it won the Nobel Prize for you know advances in medicine, but it was not an advance. It really wasn't. Then in the 1950s, they developed these drugs, which were no panacea, but they enabled people to finally leave the asylums, finally get out the door, and finally not have to be harassed by these delusions and hallucinations. Now, at the same time, as I was saying earlier, asylums became just scandalous places. So President Kennedy in 1960 said, hey, let's get rid of these asylums, let's replace them with community mental health care. And now that we have these drugs, let's get people in the community and treat them there. It was a good idea, but poorly executed. And jump to the 1980s and when President Reagan is, is in office. He says, look, these community mental health centers aren't doing anything. Let's get rid of them. Let's give the money back to the states. So, you know, The federal government should no longer be in this business. And as a result, You had, at that point in the 1980s, no, you know, few asylums, I won't say no, but few asylums, roughly like 80% or more of the asylum beds had been gone by the 1980s, 1990s. And then you had no community mental health care service, which wasn't so great, but it was something. And then you had these drugs, which were good, but they weren't a panacea. So we really developed a real gap in the system. And that's when you see a homeless population develop. I mean, there really wasn't, there were hobos in the Great Depression, but there weren't really, there wasn't this kind of big homeless population. And it's developed for a lot of reasons, housing crisis, poverty, drug abuse, a lot of reasons. But the lack of infrastructure for people with serious mental illness certainly contributed to at least 25% of homelessness. And then in the 1990s, where are we going to put these people? Well, will they end up in the jails. One have the same number of people who had been in the asylums per capita, now are in the jails. So the jails and the prisons become the largest providers of mental health care in America. Our three major providers of mental health care are our three largest jails. And that's the situation we have now. We have emergency rooms, we have psychiatric care, we have new medications, it's, you know, but still we're stuck with this legacy of how to treat people and where to treat them. And that's a you know something that developed about 200 years ago. But it's a disaster that you know now where we really have to remedy.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting how it is kind of the story of, you know, people trying to do an intervention with good intentions that just doesn't pan out the way they planned, that's led us to today. I find that interesting.
2: The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right?
0: <laughs> so kind of looking forward and thinking carefully about any next steps that we planned, what do you think would be some policy or organizational level changes that could improve care for people with serious mental illness? In well, that's the
2: US? a great and important question, Anya. Well, for starters, we have to realize these are medical illnesses and we need medical research, you know, we need better medications. The medications, as I point out throughout that, are very problematic. They help people, but they also cause lots of problems for folks, diabetes among them. And that's a significant problem, weight gain, uh, movement disorders, you know. And there are some people who say the medications have made things worse. Well, I understand and respect that perspective. I don't think that's correct but the medications need to be improved and the way they'll be improved is by research. So, you know, we had, you know, we, we've made in this country, you know, cancer a priority. I think we certainly should do that for serious mental illness and, you know, those illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So because it's a medical illness, we need medical research and we need new medications. Look, we also need uh good places to put folks. You know, you can't solve any illness with a brick and mortar solution, right? You could build a hospital, you could build a jail, whatever you build is not going to cure the illness, but we could have better places to put people. So I think we should build community mental health centers. I think we should build compassionate, you know, psychiatric centers, which humanely take care of people. Um, And I think we need to see that shift as well. I think we also need to have health insurance. For all you know, this is not a Bernie Sanders you know platform here. But I think that I, I think that when you know, at least when it comes to serious mental illness, these folks do much better when they have universal health care, when they have wraparound services, when they have health care that comes to help them to prevent them from getting sicker. Not just comes to help them when they need to go to an emergency room and rack up a big bill because we have a economically incentivized medical system which provides incredibly good acute care, but not very good preventative or long-term care. So I think those are the three things we need. And we also need to educate law enforcement and that sort of thing. I mean, there's a whole list of things I talk about in the book like mental health courts and something called assisted outpatient treatment and I think we also need treatments that don't rely on medication, but rely on psychosocial interventions. And there's a very good record of you know, people in places who do that in Norway, in Israel, in parts of the United States, you know, places where they hardly use any medication, but they really treat people effectively by treating them humanely and compassionately.
1: Do you think when looking ahead as the millennial and the Gen Zers are taking on professional roles, do you see access and mental health services expanding in, in a positive light as this generation is growing up?
2: Absolutely. Because I think this generation is really more interested in it. And they also grew up in a time when, you know, kids goes to the nurse for their like afternoon medications in elementary school. And, and, you know, it's not such a big deal to see a psychotherapist. In fact, it's probably, you know, the smart kids in class are doing so. I, and also they grew up in a time when when the, when there's a lot of information about mental illness and severe mental illness out there. So it's not just like, you know, the 1950s or 60s where all you see are images of one flow of a cuckoo's nest or there was a movie called The Snake Pit, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think Gen Z and millennials are really benefiting from, you know, a, a shift, a paradigm shift that they're frankly a part of.
0: Well, I think that's a good kind of hopeful note to end on our last question that we ask to everybody on the show is what was one thing you thought you knew but were later wrong about?
2: Oh God, the list is so long, but let me say with regards to the book and film that I I told you about this guy, Monty, I met his sister and I met his sister because she was trying to help him. And she also told me that she was an activist and I thought you know, when I met her, I thought like, this is great, because I, I really believe in activism, I believe that activism could change things. But I thought to myself, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you, you want to be a rock star, you'll never be a rock star, you're not going to change things that much. It's good that you want to do it. But you know, and it, and I'll chronicle your efforts to do it. But let's I'm not going to bet on it. Turns out, she becomes the foremost mental health activist in the world, and she co-founds Black Lives Matter and Patrice Colors, who's now my friend. That's one thing I was completely, you know, wrong about. The other thing is when I saw Bruce Springsteen when I was a, a kid, I said, he's a great guy, but I don't think he's ever going to become a singer. He also became a star as well. But that's for another podcast.
0: Well, those are all... <laughs> Great points. And I really hope that this podcast can kind of contribute to the conversations about mental illness in this country and hopefully spark more conversations among our listeners. So just to conclude, thank you, Dr. Rosenberg, for joining us today. My pleasure. And I really highly recommend reading Bedlam. We've touched on a lot of it on the show today, but there's a lot more to the book that I think We could all benefit from learning from or from watching the associated documentary, which is available on Amazon, iTunes and Google Play to learn more about serious mental illness in the United States.
1: That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Rosenberg for coming on with us today. This episode was co-hosted and written by Anya Morosev and Alexis Clark. Edited and produced by Alexis Clark. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-groundambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay happy, stay healthy, and keep learning.